0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are in a interesting part of our book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the very, very few um, liturgical pieces we have left from biblical times. We do have Psalms, so we have, you know, some, um, of that certainly would have been used as liturgy in the temple. The Levites were the choir, right? The Levitical choir would have, uh, would have sung and would have played on the musical instruments of the time in a kind of orchestra, um, and singing verses of praise, you know, from Psalms, um, but this is one of the few places we have actual liturgy that would have been set that we have the direction to an Israelite, here's what you say. It's one of the very, very few that we have. Um these two actually, these two pieces. So it's interesting um, in that sense that only these were preserved by the tradition. Um and it's it's an interesting uh way to think about liturgy in the ancient world, but certainly it still has implications for our time. So let's look at uh, chapter 26, verse 1.
0: When you enter in the land, when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to establish his name. You shall go to the priest in charge at that time and say to him, I acknowledge this day before the Lord your God that I have entered the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to assign us. Go on. The priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. You shall then recite as follows before the Lord your God. My father was a fugitive man. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand and by outstretched arm and awesome power and by signs of portents. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore I now bring the first fruits of the soil of which you, O Lord, have given me. Keep
2: going.
0: hmm. You shall leave it before the Lord your God and bow low before the Lord your God. And you shall enjoy together with the Levite and the stranger in your midst all the bounty that the Lord your God has bestowed upon you and your household.
1: Okay, good. So this is one ritual. We have two rituals here. Uh, This is the first ritual, and it has two... Parts, two components, verses uh, 3 and 4 and verses 5 and 10. When you enter the land that Adonai, your God, is giving you as a nachalah, as an inheritance, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil which you harvest from the land that God is giving you. You will put it in a basket and go to the place where God will choose to establish God's name. What is that place? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. To the altar, to the the temple. The place where God chooses to establish God's name winds up being, because they didn't know what it was going to be presumably in the imagination of the text, Right, The imagination of the author who puts this in an imaginary setting imagines that they don't know yet what that place is. So this cannot be addressed to the generation that is entering the land, can it? I'm going to say no. Um. (laughs) Why? Why can't it be addressed to them?
2: They don't know where
1: it is. They don't know where it is and it's not going to happen in their lifetime. Okay. When is the temple built? Uh, I know. You know. I know. It's right <laughs> on the Right on tip of your tongue. I know, it was I know
0: when it was it destroyed. It. <laughs> All
1: right. <laughs> 400 years after. <laughs> so there, this is not written. The, the generation who comes into the land isn't going to be the one to fulfill it. It's going to be later generations than that once they figure out this place where God will choose to establish God's name. And there's another clue that we have that means it's not just even that generation. And that clue was found in verse 3. You shall go to the priest in charge at that time. At what time? Future. Identified where, that place is. where they've identified where that place is and ever after e- whoever the priest is at that time means the time that you Israelite are bringing your first fruits which means this is in perpetuity right they didn't know they were going to be destroyed and exiled unless you believe this is written after the exile the but the imagination is still that they don't know that they're going to be exiled what is that the
3: forerunner of the Cyclades?
1: So this is Chag Habikurim. I mean, in terms of for each person, their own Chag. It's different than Chag Habikurim writ large in terms of the harvest festival and bringing the first fruits of that festival. There are species that would not have been part of the Shalosh Regalim, part of the three pilgrimage festivals. So scholars ask, wait a minute, we have a Chag Habikurim. We have a whole ritual for going up to Jerusalem with your first fruits. What is this? A basket, a thing, what, you know? So it seems that with different species of fruit, you would have different times of ripening and therefore all year long, you might be collecting things that need to have this ritual associated with them, like at different times. Then it seems there was a whole nother um, idea, which which we see in a moment, of tithing Right? And taking the tithe of your crop up to Jerusalem. And then we have the pilgrimage festivals at which everyone is supposed to come bring from their harvest. All right. So this is supposed to be in perpetuity. This is supposed to continue. What, what does the person say? You shall go to the priest with your basket. So the Mishnah, like, is very interested. Once once none of this is happening, one of the only ways to engage with it for the rabbis to express their connection and love and longing um, was to discuss it at length, right? Well, how do you know these were exactly the first fruits, right? So they would take a string and tie it around the first, um, you know, bud that was becoming uh, a fruit, um, and they would mark it. So throughout the different species that they had going at the time, they would tie a string, and then they knew to come back and clip that one and put it in the basket. And it. So, so this is we get a lot of information from the Mishnah because they're they're daydreaming all day long, right, about what used to happen in the temple because it's their only connection. So what are the well, the person then brings this basket to the priest and says. What? Very interesting. What's this?
3: Uh, I, I got it. We've already read that, right?
1: Right? So five through ten. So it's interesting. Three this is verse three still. Well,
3: verse three is not liturgy, it's it's, a, it's an action. Reuben,
1: look at the second half of verse three. Vaamarta Elav, and you will say to him, quote Now we get the liturgy. He hayom la adonai. I declare this day before yod heh vav right? I mean, you shall. I acknowledge this day before Adonai Elohecha, your God. Who's God? But why is he saying your God? <laughs> it is an ancient custom to talk about someone of very high status, particularly somebody who was considered closer to air quotes for those of you listening to the podcast, uh, closer, um, to God to say your God. It means their God too, but it somehow is like you, you have a different relationship to that God. So you were, they call it your God. So before the priest, you say, I acknowledge before you'd hey, vov hey, your God. My God too, of course. That I have come to the land that yud vav swore to give to our ancestors. The priest then takes the basket and sets it down in front of the altar. And then the person goes on, Right? And what does the person say? This very interesting phrase.
2: Gives a review of history.
1: (laughs) So the first thing the person says is, Arami oved avi. Can you hear the alliteration in the Hebrew? Arami oved avi. Yeah? This was an oral recitation. So probably it makes it easier to remember what it is you're supposed to say when there's alliteration. What does it mean? So Sarah's right, Sarah's right. We're going to go to some kind of a recitation of history that begins with this very interesting line. Arami oveid avi. What do we know about that Hebrew? So what's, what's the, what's the only clear part of that Hebrew? What's the clearest part of that Hebrew?
3: Can
1: we hear it again, please? Arami. Ovein. Mm-hmm. Avi. So what's the the clear part is and this is an aleph, not an ayin. That makes a difference. Alright, so of course it reads this way <laughs> Arami Ovein, Avi. But This is the only one that's like really clear. (laughs) Because it means what? Avi. My My father. Yes, so father, yes. My father. Remember that av in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, means father. In ancient Hebrew, it meant ancestor. Avi is a relationship, kinship term, Backward through the generation, it does not necessarily mean your biological father. So when we say that when we open the tefillah with um, God of our foremothers and forefathers, right, it's avotenu, literally our fathers, but it's our ancestors. So my ancestor, literally now my father, but it means the sense of, Generations, be- a generation at least before. So, my ancestor, the Aramee. In the ninth century, we, we know there were serious tensions between people who identified as Arameans and the Israelites. They were at war. So, it is unlikely that is what this means, and it's unlikely that it's late. Right? If in the 9th century BCE there's already antithesis, there are already enemies, it has to predate that. So this is probably very, very old. If so, what's Arami? Who is the Avi? And who is the Arami? What what does Arameen mean? Who might this ancestor be?
2: Joseph. Who? Jacob. Who
3: who went to Egypt?
1: Who went to Egypt? All right, because we get that next sentence because Reuben has read ahead carefully. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. So it's got to be somebody who went down to Egypt. So I've just heard two options thrown out. Jacob, Joseph, who else?
0: It was Jacob. As was already
1: there. Lisa, it was Jacob. <laughs> 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 but wasn't because? already there? Ah.
0: When he made her numbers, Joseph didn't go willingly. He was captured. He was brought there. He was in prison. All right, so it doesn't
1: say he was taken down to Egypt. So Lisa's arguing. It says he went down must mean something about agency numbers. so you with others. and what you
0: said with meager numbers with
1: meager numbers
0: <laughs>
1: so <laughs> so Sorry. moses didn't go moses is not known for going down to egypt the <laughs> song That's So, <laughs> I know. It's like, so, my, um, my understanding of our mythology is that Moses was born in Egypt. Most, the go down Moses is Moses is supposed to go down from where? From exile. From Midian. He was exiled. Because he killed somebody. He's a fugitive. He has to go down from Midian to Egypt. But this, right, seems to suggest somebody who goes down to Egypt who wasn't born there. So, come on, you got to give me one more big possibility. Aramean, Aram, Padan Aram. Ha-ha! Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well done, Pam. She
3: was just waiting on.
1: <laughs> She's holding out. So, Ar- Arami, right, that E on the end in Hebrew is like it Right? Israelites Yisraeli. So, um, possibly this is referencing Aram Naharaim. Could be referencing Padan Aram. We get those places associated, uh, a lot with uh, being alongside the river, um, and this could be either then Yaakov or Avraham, right? All right, so Joseph, I'm just going to put in parentheses because unlikely it's referring to Joseph. Um, Joseph, interestingly enough, is not usually listed among the patriarchs. Right? He's not considered an, an avi, or an av, an, an ancestor, a forefather in the same way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, and of course before them, Abraham. So likely it is referencing an ancestor figure, and that would have been one of the, the big ones. Right? Um, one of the big three. <laughs> um, alright. Probably not Isaac because Isaac never left Canaan, right? He stayed home. All right, so so Arami we've, we've played a little bit with that. So then we're left with this, Oved. So there's two possibilities in the ancient literature, in the ancient world about Oved. It can mean something related to, and notice I don't even expect you to have a clue about this one, um, Perish or stray. So these are two words in the ancient world that are related. We have cognates in Akkadian. Um, We even get a cognate in Akkadian that means to flee. Ah, Exactly. So when scholars are trying to figure out what to do with this, I just always, I'm not going to go too much in depth here because we don't know which one of these it is. But just always remember that when you read a translation, they're having to choose from among all of the different possibilities and different flavors that this word that we don't really know what it means, means. Right? So that we always, we read a translation as authoritative, a translation is always already an interpretation and in this case it is very clearly uh, an interpretation um so something about it, whatever flavor we go with perish meaning you know on on the border of perishing from hunger or thirst um to stray meaning like no real direction you know kind of lost in the world possibly, wandering, or flee with a sense of fugitive. No matter which one of these you go with, it seems, given that it's set, its context is dealing with a ritual saying, you've brought me to the land that you promised this ancestor who was obeyed. It, It probably means something about being landless. Homeless in terms of a, a, a place that one's people belongs to. Yes? Um, cause no matter which of these you take and then you have a ritual saying, yay, we're here in the land. Yay, the land is fertile. Yay, God kept God's promise. It means you changed the status of the descendants, you know, from whatever this was to having land and having place and having sacred relationship to it. So this is the beginning that he went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there but there he became a great and very populous nation the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us they imposed heavy labor upon us we p- cried to Adonai the God of our ancestors and YHWH heard our plea And saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. And God freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And awesome power. And by signs and portents. And brought us to this place. And gave us this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore I now bring the first fruits of the soil which you, O God, have given me. Why do you know this text? You know this text.
3: You mentioned that it's the liturgy. But where in the... The service,
1: it? It's not generally in our service, but we say it every year.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: The, yeah. It's the Haggadah. Yeah. Right? This is the core of the Haggadah. Yeah. This liturgy is still in place. Just think about that for five seconds. From this time, you shall bring what you have to the priest and say these words we still say these words every year. That's crazy. How amazing is that? Thousands of years we've been saying these words. Now you can point to other texts and tell me that they are core and central. I believe that. You can point to Shema, 100%. Point to the Ten Commandments, absolutely. But there is a part of me That says, this is it. Because
2: of the land.
1: Because of the sense that who we are is absolutely fundamentally determined by our history. We are determined by the fact that who we are is a people who suffered oppression, dislocation marginalization, disempowerment, and we had a relationship to some crazy thing we call Yerevave. And in that relationship, our reality changed, and we locate that change in that force that we call God. And out of our change in circumstance, we are a people who feels called to give thanks for our blessings and our bounty. This is where we start everything. We wake up in the morning and we have blessings to say, thank you God, right? That I woke up, thank you God, that my mind can discern from day and night. Thank you God, Rokaha aret Al Hamayim, that I wake up and stand on firm ground. Zokave kifufim. Thank you, God, that I stood up straight this morning. Well, <laughs> right, Ruben. Depending on the day, is how straight we actually stand up. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: that that it's not unrelated. Our our reality is not unrelated to this vast power in the universe that is beyond our possibility of understanding, but not, but always within our capacity to experience. That is a phenomenal thing. And it's so Jewish (laughs) in its time. It's radical because pagan religion was about giving thanks to the God of fertility, the God of the land For the gift of bounty from the land. The people that the Israelites lived among, and most of us believe arose out of, uh, right, um, worshipped Baal at this time of year. They thanked Baal for Baal's moving through, you know, its own forces of fertility in order to result in crops. Not the Israelites. The Israelites understood Udhavaffe to be this yes, that which makes for fertility in the soil and brings that forth is the same force that changed our circumstances from Egyptian slavery to responsible covenantal freedom. They are the same. That is a radical move in the ancient Near East. It is ethical monotheism. It is brand spanking new in the ancient world. This is one of our greatest contributions as a civilization to humanity. I'm not saying there there weren't other impulses towards that happening. You can read um, Karen Armstrong's book, The Axial Age, where she believes humanity was at a tipping point around this time and that all over the world you see kind of this, you know, movement towards a new understanding of the divine, um, and that this is the Israelite version of it. But with Ankenaten, right, in Egypt, you know, that movement towards monotheism and then the reaction against it by the polytheistic temples who were going to lose their business, <laughs> right? They crack down and, you know, destroy every remnant of Ankenaten and his movement towards monotheism. Um so I'm, I'm not gonna say it's the only impulse towards it, but it's brand new and very well articulated in our, in our literature. So for me, um, as a people who identifies itself with its history and ties the God of that to the God of the soil, um, that our story's not separate from our gratitude. And here's the beauty for me. Okay. It goes on. What makes it even better is each one of us is obligated to say this in every generation. I was wandering, right? I was a wandering Aramean. Each one of us at the Passover Seder is supposed to, to say, I experienced the liberation, the redemption from Egypt, me. So that we don't ever otherize ever those who are oppressed. If each of us says it was I who was liberated, I was the slave, you can never turn to another person living in oppression or poverty and say, if only you would work harder. You can't ever otherize the slave or otherize those who are marginalized or disappeared or silenced or stigmatized. Because you're supposed to understand it was you. That to me, that connection, that real sense that this covenant remains in place because it's us, that is powerful. Truly powerful. So you are to take this basket and leave it before Adonai your God. You bow low and You shall enjoy together with the Levite and the stranger in your midst all the bounty that God has bestowed upon you and your household. Why is it the gare here? Why not the widow and the orphan? Why not the poor? Why is it the gare that gets to eat this particular offering? The gare. What's a gare? A stranger. A stranger. Very nice, Laura. It says the Gare so that you shouldn't forget. You were the Gare. Who gets to benefit from this? The people who are in exactly the same situation that you were. Don't you forget it, you wealthy landed Israelite. That's who benefits. So that you make sure you identify with the Gare. That was your ancestor. And in later ritual, we know us. So that is who will eat of this. Of course, it includes the poor and the widow and the orphan, we can imagine. Um, but particularly the one who suffers not having relatives here. No protection of clan. No security about being able to work the land. The gear has very few rights, very few protections legally in the ancient world. In an agricultural society. So this is the the, rich, the first ritual. Any comments here?
3: I noticed you use the word energy to uh, describe uh, that God is doing the same thing in different, <clears throat> as opposed to the various gods, lowercase. And you use the word energy to describe uh, God.
1: Do I want to comment on that? Um, For me, it's really my closest understanding of that word, God. There is there for me, God is not being a being. God is being capital B existence, reality capital R. Um, That energy that holds it all together, that moves through it all, animates it all. We know that. This is 99. what 8% energy? It's just frozen energy. For me that's the closest word in our time I can find to identify in our linguistic <laughs> um world um a, a word that works for me. Um I don't believe in a god who thinks and decides. I do believe as I'm a true reconstructionist this way, you know, that Kaplan, you know, when Kaplan talks about, um, liberation or transformation, he identifies God as the power that makes for, and fill in the blank energy, right? The, the energy that makes for liberation that is what we tapped, says Rabbi Rami Shapiro, to walk out of Egypt. That's a little different than God liberated us from Egypt, um, but is my theology, right? That we tap that power that allows for transformation, redemption, um, liberation to, to, to walk out. Blanche?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: the tender mother who cares for a child
1: stands for the world as it ought to be. As a what? As it ought to be. As it ought to be. Now, this
2: is one of the first times that motherhood has been given this status aside from providing an heir. And I was very impressed with it.
1: And what is it referencing?
3: It's it's post-biblical interpretation is all it says.
1: Of what? Of one of these texts?
2: 1210.
1: It's referencing what? 1210? Yes. No, something hot. Okay. So, um. Post-biblical interpretation. I'm just curious what they're linking it to here. How if you obey, uh, I... Because this is where Yitz Greenberg goes with the whole concept of Breit. So Yitz Rabbi Yitz Greenberg teaches, he's got a great new book. He's, he says his wife made him quit doing other stuff to write it, because um, she was afraid he wouldn't get to it. <laughs> um, and he, he's been studying this... Um, Concept at deeper and deeper levels. But so this whole, which we're going to look at at the, you know, it's the end of our parsha, is this idea of covenant. And Breit, for, for him, there's no olive. Breit is, and all of the meats vote that flow from Breit are those things that we do in the world that is to move it slightly closer to the world that ought to be. Mitigating the circumstances of what is more towards what ought to be. That Genesis imagines a vegetarian existence. Right? There's no killing and eating of animals in the Garden of Eden. It's not until after the flood that we have meat being permitted. So that the ideal, paradise, the ideal of Eden was vegetarianism. (laughs) 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 The world that we live in (laughs) is one where meat is consumed. So what Yitz Greenberg argues is so... After the flood, you know, we get kind of this understanding of covenant, and that is that God accepts that it, that it's not where it ought to be. So how can we behave in ways that, that accept it as it is and move it towards what ought to be? You can't eat anything you want. You can eat some meat. You just can't eat all the meat you want, any kind, anytime. Does that make sense? Um, and so what I hear you saying is that there's, Midrashic literature that says this is what mothers do is stand for what ought to be rather than only what is, which is, I just would love to know where they pull that from. It's actually on page 1211 at the bottom. It's, it's actually a gruesome paragraph. It's what? It's, it's, it's pretty gruesome. It's um on page 1211. It, it explains where it's from. to it's What does it link it to? Okay, there you go. There you go. Right, it always comes from some fantastic place, like right being attacked by the Romans. And...
3: Uh, I'm really interested in what you just erased. It, 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 it's <laughs> Catholicism. It's Catholicism. I'm really interested in what you just took <inaudible> off the board. You said God has the power that God makes for mm for. Him. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between power and energy.
1: Okay, tell me.
3: Power, but I got to go back to my old textbooks to be sure I got this right. <laughs> power is is a term that describes a force moving through a dis, through distance or time. Something is pushing, you know, away a distance, and that's what that's what power is. Ener, energy is something else. It's like you know, vibration, gravity, motion, whatever. So I really like Kaplan's description. That what you're talking about is uh, it is is something that forces things to happen. Yes. That drives causality. Yes. That's power. Yes you use power and energy and it I do.
1: Not being a physicist. Well, I got um, to go do some research. I, that's exactly right. But I, um, I, I, but, I mean, I don't think they are mutually exclusive, right? They are no. different. They're different. It's particle wave. You know, it's like both and. That, that that energy that is everywhere and is not necessarily moving or, you know, directional in any sense Is potential, is, you know, is present, is amorphous, is, that is a good, let's just say even metaphor, right? I don't believe God necessarily is energy. I think that's too small, but it's a way for me to hold the concept God that, that doesn't in any sense anthropomorphize or, you know, give God, um, a sense of thinking that makes me very nervous. Right, a God who makes decisions makes me very nervous.
3: I just like I just like the
1: force concept. Well, I want you to work with it. I, now you got to read some Kaplan, and I want you to come back to us informed. Um, I don't know how well Kaplan knew science. Assuming he did somewhat, um, this is certainly. I mean, I love this idea that it, there is there's that which we can't see that moves things towards when. Kaplan would say there's a human component also, you know that that we we must draw on the power that makes for liberation by walking out of Egypt. We have to move into the sea. Right? It's not it's not just one pushes us to liberation. It's that we draw on the power that makes for liberation to step into the water, and that's what causes the waters to part. The combination of those two things. I saw a hand and yeah, yeah. Um, the, the way I perceive
0: it or kind of uh, put it in an image is that
2: energy is like the it's passive like the one, you have all the possibilities of some things to happen or to be and then there's a, I would add a third word which the intention the intention makes the energy become powerful to become something or to have a direct direction Or to become something, so that's the active. The other, the energy is there. The passive is the woman, the one, and then comes the intention that lightens something, that energy, and becomes that power that moves. Lovely. The male side, because everything's male.
1: So lovely. So. Active and passive, dynamic and static, potential and actual. All of this exists, by the way, in, um, Gersonides, um, <laughs> in case you want to look it up, um, Gersonides writes like a lot about the idea of potential and our whole life is about actualizing what is in potentia and that that is, that is the art of being human. That is our job through intention. We take things from Potential to um, gashmute, to, to actual yesh and ayin. Isness and nothingness. Those are the, those are the poles between which we move.
3: I just want to make sure I understood
1: your accent. Did you say womb? Womb, womb? yes. Yeah,
3: it yeah, looks uh, so passive. Have, you know yeah. it has the ability the and then the intention comes in and creates it into the power and makes it active. So passive.
1: Beautiful. And th- this happens all the time. That's the other thing I love about this as, as ritual, as liturgy, is it we don't recite this just as history. It is history, and our history is important. But it's living history. We are always moving from Egypt to the promised land. Always. And we are always going back there. <laughs> To mitrayim, the place of constriction. Tsar, the rabbis read. Tsarim, narrows, blinders, right? Tightness, stuckness. We are always moving back to that place, and we always must then find a way to tap that force that will allow us to push out of those places once again into a land flowing with milk and honey. And there is a 40-year journey in between... <laughs> It ain't overnight and it ain't easy and we do it all the time. I think this became particularly powerful. It's why it's in the Haggadah. It became particularly powerful for a people in exile who were once again Arami, Ovid, once again without a place, once again vulnerable, fugitive, on the run, temporary, Sojourners, Gare, strangers. This became particularly powerful for us. And I believe is one of the ways we maintained our identity in all of the lands of our dispersion. As the language goes, this is how we did it. Is that no, no matter where we were sitting, no matter where our table was, no matter how temporary or how permanent we thought that table was, we all told the same story the absolutely unbelievable miracle of the whole business is that there's Israel again. Only because this is the story we identified with and lived, no matter where we were.
2: And this is a story that was told the night of the first Seder in the Warsaw Ghetto, just before the big uprising. three people survived
1: and the first time this was ever told it said you shall tell it with girded loins and with your sandals on your feet and your backpack on ready to go that's how you told the story the first time in Egypt in slavery in danger gird your loins that always means weapons weapons Get ready. You may have to fight your way out. Which is why I don't have a God that makes decisions. Because where was God then? God is in the power we have to hold and remember and transcend even, even evil, decimating the innocent of our people. And the challenge, the challenge of our, of every time, but particularly now, the challenge is to continue to identify with the innocent in every place that are being destroyed. Destroyed. And what is, as an American, I have to ask, what is my part in that? The kinds of things our government condones and does. We have power now. We're in a democratic government where we have, we are the most powerful nation on the planet. And we who have suffered such atrocious, horrific loss and torture... Can we continue to come out of this and not out of retribution, not out of revenge, not out of fear? Can we continue to come out of therefore? You will protect the gear, those who are powerless. And it is a mighty struggle to stay here, a mighty struggle. When I hear the level of rhetoric, when I hear the level of scary vitriol being used within our own community to talk about this, it frightens me. It really frightens me. It's a deep sadness and a very, very large concern of many of us in the rabbinate. As we look to our communities, particularly, you can tell where I am. I mean, coming up on the High Holy Days, looking at the state of the conversation, looking at the state of our ability to hold, how do we honor this now that we have power? We still come, right? We still have the history of being traumatized and victimized and terrorized. And we are, in some ways, I mean, certainly there are places in Israel that are terrorized all the time. How do we hold both of those? And and the the state of the conversation is not in a good place, I don't think. And I'm deeply concerned for us as a people that if we can't continue to see this text as central and if we can't figure out a way to have the conversation about How and are we living into this? I fear for our soul. I'm not saying what the answer is. I'm saying if we can't have the conversation, I worry we are compromising what has kept us an ethical, moral center for the planet. We've had that as our credentials for so long. And I just want to make sure we're doing the incredibly brave, courageous, very scary work of continuing to talk about what that means in our time. So I go into the holidays with (laughs) hope and not a small deal of trepidation to even begin addressing, you know, this issue. Would you, Pam, please pass out the covenant and conversation? Or I, actually, it's probably a packet at this point. You've got Rabbi Gold and... Two different, two different things. things? Yeah. You've, it, they should be together. I think Leslie put them together. Mm-hmm. Great. So just take a packet. Oh,
3: so this
2: One. I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you concerned because there's so much resentment at what's going on in Gaza, and uh, you're afraid that if we show no compassion to the Gazans, we we regress to being monsters? But isn't that Can you find an answer? No an answer.
1: I just want to make sure we can have the conversation. It, it, because I feel like that, that's, what, that's what makes us who we are, is the people willing to struggle with how hard the choices are.
2: But do we know if there is conversation? We don't even know. So I, do mean know? Hmm?
1: I mean among us. I mean among us. Forget about, about, about them. There is no one to have a conversation with. No. No,
2: but in Israel, are they having a conversation about this?
1: Yes, and what's interesting to me is I feel like the conversation is a little more open in Israel than it is here. That's
2: interesting. It's very interesting. Yes, yes,
1: I that, pe- that I think that journalists and other people within Israel feel more able, not totally, but more able to be critical and to have a critical conversation than we do here. Yeah.
3: So Israelis being critical about Israel.
1: Yeah. yeah no, exactly. About the government, about whatever decisions are made.
2: Ooh. No, you don't, you don't think people here talk about being critical about the government?
3: I no.
1: President Obama. You can't. Was, I don't think you can religion. say that in any Jewish community and feel safe. Absolutely not. Really. Very critical. <laughs> of our government? government? No, Which government? government? Not our government. Government
3: of Israel.
0: Not. Right. American Jews get in trouble with each other. Yes. Criticize criticize
1: Israel. Yeah. Or having the discussion at levels that are real, exactly. Yeah. And if we can't be safe with each other in this conversation, yeah. to have the conversation, I worry for who we're becoming. That's all. I mean, I, That's all. I mean. <laughs> Or, and to discuss what are our ethical exactly. concerns and, and about whatever situation is unfolding, and I feel like we're not we're not at a place of having that conversation in any way rationally or with with understanding of good intention on both sides. Right? The vitriol is so high. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that, that it's it's it, 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 it's it's more.
3: Same thing as where you, you can't have a debate to about abortion, you can't have a debate <laughs> about guns. I mean
1: you, you yeah. Yeah. not in this country. I, no, it's but, it's but I think
2: it's so a amongst, very rational amongst the Jewish in, within the Jewish community talking about Israel the Right. Okay. So, and it's but maybe it's because we are the it's strangers. Survival. We are like the strangers. If we don't say Israel is the perfect ideal state, then we have nothing. We like these, you know. I mean, if the ideal is to have a land of our own, it's there. There's the land of our own. If we start knocking the land of our own. How can we ever get to that ideal state as strangers? Because
1: if we don't, what is it? If we don't involve in a really serious conversation about what that state is about, then we have abandoned the ideal. We we are
2: not allowed to abandon the ideal. That's exactly right.
1: That's exactly right. So we have to stay in the conversation about what does the ideal right now call for. That's the discussion I don't feel is allowed to happen right because
2: now. We feel really powerless. Because
1: so why? that's a concern I have that when we come out of we're powerless, then we do really we do things that are not in line with with what I believe our greatest but ethics and morals are.
2: A kind of defensive, natural place to go when you're under attack from all sides when anti-Semitism is greater now than I mean for those of us who lived through Holocaust years we thought well now it's over now the world is a whole different place well you know in France it isn't and yeah so it's a tough spot to be
1: in 100% no denying that no denying that but I've mm mm <laughs> yes, and because it's so painful and because the cost and the implications are so dire, in either case, we have to be really vigilant about the conversation. Okay. And not, I have a bumper sticker in my office that says fearful people do stupid things. And I believe that. When we come out of only fear, we do stupid things. We do devastating things. We do wrong things. Sometimes we have to do things that another part of us believes is wrong. Okay, but let's talk about it. If we decide even that we have to do something that's abhorrent to us to survive, okay, but are we talking about it? Really talking about it? I don't know. I think fear still informs so much of the mood of the conversation that I worry, I worry for us.
3: It does. It, it, it totally does now more than ever. Because good people reason. feel they need a place. Like, I was born in 1965. I grew up learning about the Holocaust. I always said in my head, that was the... First time this in this era right now that I'm like, oh my God, you know, especially like reading about Alon Gold and the things that happened to him just six miles away, and then the fear takes over and you go, "Thank God, if the shit hits, we have a place to go." We have a like you're and if you're right, it's the fear that takes in. That
2: makes you defend Israel to the whole? Get, getting back to the, a happy place to be here and now in Los Angeles. I was at Temple Emmanuel yesterday.
1: Wait a minute, getting back to my happy place here in Los Angeles, Temple Emmanuel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> a <little affirmative>. laugh
2: Yeah, I was at a an event for Holocaust survivors.
0: 150
2: survivors were there, plus a lot of caregivers. They're very, very elderly now and very, very frail. Yet they came to this event and had a wonderful time. And um, it was good. And it was good, so and they and they remembered
0: each other. That was very
1: good they were So <laughs> the small blessings. Yeah. All right, let's let's go to um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and look at his second page of commentary, which is numbered his page three. So I guess it's the third page of his commentary says covenant societies you see that drop down to this like second to last big paragraph covenant societies are not ethnic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. someone read that for us Go on.